0: Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16 this morning, it is our joy and delight to preach the whole counsel of God from his inspired and inerrant word given to us. And God's word to you this day comes from Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, Command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when their owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrate, they said, These men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. When they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were being shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here, and the jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the words of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house set food before them, and he rejoiced, along with the entire household, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them calm themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. There was a revival in our country that took place in the 1700s that was unprecedented and has never been duplicated. And it was the Great Awakening. Many, many souls were converted unto Christ, so much so that the culture was radically changed in and throughout these communities where it took place. And Jonathan Edwards, who preaching and teaching the Lord used mightily during this time, wrote an essay called The Surprising Work of God. It was a defense of what was taking place in his very community and in his church and even farther beyond. It was a defense much like that of Peter on the day of Pentecost to kind of explain what was happening, this mighty work of God, this mighty Work of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, it was a surprising work of God. As I think of Acts chapter 16, there is probably no more appropriate title than that the surprising work of God in Philippi. As Luke lays out before us three conversions, three conversions of three very different and unique people. No doubt there were many more during their time in Philippi and their ministry there that was probably ongoing for many months, but I think Luke documents these three because these three are kind of the, the bookends, so to speak. One happening at the, the beginning of their ministry, and then these two that happened at the very end. On the front end, you have the conversion of Lydia, who was seemingly the, the first converts, not only in Philippi, but in Macedonia, and therefore in Europe. And she quite literally opened the door to ministry for them. But then at the very end of their time there, they have this conversion of this demon-possessed girl. And because of it, as we just read, they were arrested and had to leave the city but not before the Philippian jailer was miraculously converted. And so we have three surprising works of God that indeed highlights their ministry. And it highlights not only the ministry in Philippi, not even the ministry of the Apostle Paul or the apostles as a whole, but the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ministry of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I tell you what, the same work is being done this very day. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is no less miraculous. And it is no less surprising than it was then. And so I want us to see this morning three types of conversions. We see first, the quiet conversion. Second, the forceful conversion. And third, the unsuspecting conversion. First, the the quiet conversion. We return this morning to the riverside of Philippi and examine this conversion of Lydia that we were introduced to last week. And it says that on the Sabbath day, these apostles went to this place because they had heard that there were those that were gathering there to pray. And that Sabbath would Be like no other. And the very reason why the apostles were there, if you remember from last week, was because the Lord gave the apostle Paul a vision, a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us. If you remember, the Lord had shut many doors, had put roadblocks in their way, and they were calling upon the Lord to ask them where they needed to go. And it was through this vision that they determined that the Lord was calling them to Macedonia. And so they went. This band of brothers went to Macedonia. Paul, Silas, Timothy, who had joined the group, as we saw last week, and now as well as Luke, Luke has joined the apostolic journeys here, the author of this book, and we know that because in chapter 16, we see the inclusion of the first person plural pronoun, we. We see it in verse 11, we set sail to Macedonia. You see it in verse 16, we went to this place of prayer, and it was this apostolic band of brothers that went and there on the riverside, they encountered not men, but women, indeed Gentile women. And the very first convert in their ministry in Macedonia in the continent of Europe was a woman, probably even several women. And that is significant because Judaism and Christianity often is Stereotyped in our day as being a masculine and patriarchal religion that breeds toxic masculinity. Well, anybody that believes that has never read the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, nor has read the ministry of the apostles, because women are highlighted as key members of the ministry throughout. And that is significant because in this day and age, in the day of Jesus, the day of the apostles, women were considered very much less than men. But we do not see that attitude in Christ, do we? We do not see that attitude with the apostles or in Christianity as a whole. And I think we see that as Luke writes of this conversion, that this wasn't a trivial matter. This wasn't just a a nobody in his mind of of no great significance. No, Luke wants to make it known that this was very much a a work of God. But it's also a a proclamation, as we saw last week, of the wonderful contribution that this particular woman made not only in Philippi, but on the continent of Europe. As I mentioned last week, the, the Lord, you study church history, was very much pleased to use the continent of Europe for centuries, to be the the place, to be the the nursery, so to speak, where the the church grew up, where its roots went down very deeply and its branches spread, as Jesus talked about, to to the ends of the earth, including to this very place, this very day. And humanly speaking, we have to give that credit to Lydia. If you ever wanted a a patron saint, it would be Lydia, who is a Gentile woman. And Lord uses women and praise God for it. If any of you know the history of Smyrna Presbyterian Church, it was established out of a women's Bible study. And so all of us are to give credit to the Lord for the women that God has placed. Not only the woman Lydia, but this group of women in Smyrna that started, in a sense, this church. All of us are here because the Lord uses not just men, but women. And praise God for it. And so Lydia, this respectable woman in that area, was used by God. And I say she was a respectable woman because she was probably very well to do. Why do I say that? Well, because she was a seller of purple, which was extremely rare and extremely expensive. It was made from from shellfish and you would need thousands upon thousands of of these shells to to make the the tiniest amount of of dye. That's why purple is the color of royalty, because only the the rich and the the famous could afford it. But what do we see? In the life of Lydia, riches were not enough, were they? And they are never enough. We need Jesus. We need conversion. And I think it's fascinating how she was converted. She's converted very simply, very quietly. As one commentator put it, some are awakened from death unto life, like waking from sleep with a kiss, like a gentle kiss on the cheek that would wake up your child. So to the conversion of Lydia was like a, a kiss. It was softly. It was gently. We just read simply that the, the Lord opened her heart, and because the Lord opened her heart, she was able to Pay attention. She was able to hear. She was able to listen. She was able to understand. And as a result, she placed her faith in the, the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't this this radical Damascus Road conversion where Paul saw this miraculous vision with all of this light. No, it says the very simply that the Lord opened her heart. It was something that was unseen. And through it, through the preaching and. Uh, Teaching of God's Word, she came to understand of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same type of conversion that many of you have experienced. Now, you cannot name a, a time or a, a place, but you know that your heart was warm to the things of God. It was a continual growth in God's grace. It's the conversion that we pray for for all of our children. Is it not? That they would be like Timothys when the Apostle Paul says, from your youth you have known the scriptures. And like Lydia, that her heart would be opened up through the preaching and teaching of God's word so God would use his preaching and his teaching of this word to open up the hearts of our children so that they always say, well, of course he's the Lord. Of course he is my savior. I would have it no other Way awakened so gently, like with a kiss and so this seeker, this one who was called a worshiper of God, understood the truth. she knew what was missing, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, this was the one that she had been waiting for she had no doubt probably understood some of the Old Testament. Perhaps was even a, a convert to Judaism and says, yes, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I find it so fascinating that as soon as she is converted, she urges them to stay at her house, which would have been quite a commitment if you think about it. As I mentioned, this apostolic band would have been at least four. Men, perhaps more. And they were to have housing provided for them and, and food, which again is no small commitment. If these ministers are, are anything like Danny Myers, they eat a lot of food. And so they were not there just for a couple days, they were there for several months. If you've ever had house guests, You know, after a couple days, you're thinking, whew, this is a lot. And Lydia signs up for, for months and months of this. It would have taken financial and housing wherewithal to do something like this. And yet the Lord knew what was needed. The Lord knew what the apostles needed. And knew that Lydia could provide it, and and he changed her heart so that she would be open to this, being the very first convert. And she provided for Paul and provided for the team. Isn't it beautiful that as the Lord redeems, he, he uses all that we have for kingdom purposes? Lydia's home, her food, her finances now become a part of what she wants to give unto the Lord. When the gospel comes home, it literally changes everything about us. Well, Lydia was indeed a, a great asset to the work of ministry. We see even at the very end, when they are kicked out of the city, they, they go to Lydia to, to give her thanks for what she had done. Well, if This woman was in asset, the very next woman that we see was a liability because we see seconds, not a, a quiet conversion, but a very radical and even forceful conversion. Again, if Lydia was respectable in that community, this seemingly young girl was quite the opposite. And indeed, she really had a sad existence. This young girl was a slave literally and spiritually. A slave of men and a slave of Satan. Because it says that she was possessed with a spirit of divination. She had an evil spirit and yet a profitable one. Not for her, of course, but for her captors who made her engage in this fortune telling. Supposedly knowing the future. And this work still takes place today, does it not? With horoscopes and And stars aligning and and this person that can read your palm in some seedy building in some run-down part of town. And foolishly, people give their, their money or give their attention, at least, to this. And I find that interesting, do you not? That mankind is more concerned with knowing the future than being faithful in the present. Not trusting the one who knows the future, who holds the future in the palm of his hands. And perhaps maybe it's because foolishly we think if we we know the future, then we can control the future. But we cannot control the future, can we? No more than we can control today or what will happen in the very next second. But so foolishly we, we try. And there are those that are ready to collect On the foolishness and and sinfulness of mankind. If there's a a prophet to be made, so they will try to make it, so too here with this poor girl. And this girl, it seems, had a, a bizarre connection with the Apostle Paul. Luke says that she would follow them daily wherever they went. And it's interesting what she would cry out. You see it there in verse 17. She would say, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And you might read that and think, well, what's the harm in that? What she's saying is, is true, it's right. Doesn't Paul know that all publicity is good publicity? Wouldn't it be beneficial to have this young girl be there? publicitists, uh, to, to give free advertising to the world. This demon-possessed girl was like many during Jesus' day. That would do very much the same. We know who you are, son of the most high God. So too, this young girl had the eyes to to see into the to the spiritual realm. And it's interesting that it demonstrates that even demons know the truth. That's why knowing the truth is not sufficient, is it? James chapter two says, you believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Children, that's an important message as well as for you youth. It's not just knowing the way of salvation, or even knowing the, the message of salvation. That in itself does not save. It's knowing, but it's also believing and trusting the message, and better yet, believing and trusting the, the messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not sufficient just to know that Jesus saves. No, we need to know that Jesus saves me, because I need saving, Well, this young girl knew enough of what was taking place to proclaim that indeed these were servants of the Most High God. And yes, they do show the way of salvation, but it says that Paul had had enough of this. Why? I think because he did not want her to be the mouthpiece, in some way discrediting the message. He didn't want guilt by association. Paul didn't want what he was doing or what he was Preaching to be associated to what she was doing, or what her captors were doing, or what they were believing. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 6, does he not? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or fellowship has light with darkness, or harmony between Christ and Belial, or what does a believer and have common with an unbeliever? In this case, what is a, a true preacher and spokesman of the gospel? have in common with a false soothsayer. But yet, isn't it interesting? I love this. This is in verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, as one who gets annoyed often, I appreciate the honesty of Luke, of the Apostle Paul here, that he had kind of had enough. He finally became wore out by her. And so, what takes place is what I like to call evangelism by irritation. <laughs> if you've ever been annoyed by a neighbor or a coworker, maybe you should try this. Why don't you try evangelizing them? <laughs> Instead of telling them off, tell them about Jesus. Because if God so intervenes, you will have the very best of solutions to that irritation. And perhaps Paul didn't have the the best motivations for wanting to see her converted. But the Lord can use even imperfect motivations for the glory of God. Because as he turns around and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. It says, and it came out that very hour that she was delivered. She was freed not by the Apostle Paul, but by Christ Jesus. She is freed from her spiritual bondage and her darkness, that she undergoes this radical deliverance and healing. And that is exactly what takes place whenever there is a conversion. Perhaps not as radically as this, not as forcefully as this, but we need to be reminded that all of us were once under the sway of the evil one that our eyes were blinded, that our hearts were hardened, our ears were blocked, and yet the Lord plucked us out of the snare and pit because we were dead, dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions. And Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the power of his word, makes us alive. And this girl was made alive. She was given true freedom. The same freedom that we now have in Christ Jesus our Lord. That we are free not only from the penalty of death, but we are free from the power of death. We are no longer under its bondage. If the Lord has set you free, then you are free indeed, the scripture says. Paul says if you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. What a radical change, is it not? From rags to riches, from death to life, from demon-possessed to spirit indwelt, this young girl's life was changed forcefully and radically. And so is yours. Even if we have had conversion that was very quiet, like Lydia's, or if we have had one that is very radical, like this demon-possessed woman, it's the very much the same. Because we must recognize that we were no worse off than this young girl because we were. Oftentimes our bondage is much more subtle, isn't it? The bondage it is. And therefore, if you are in Christ, we must be reminded that indeed we are free. And we must not give ourselves over to any type of bondage anymore. That we are free from the the worst of bondage. And so therefore we cannot say and should not say, I will, I will never be free from this sin. I will never be free from pornography. I will always be an addict. The, the bottle, the, the, the drugs, the, the painkillers, this food has too much of a grip on me. No, if this girl was set free from demon possession, then the Lord can free us from anything, can he not? And will free us Why? Because he is greater than all of our bondage. He is greater than all of our sin. Satan and the world and the flesh has nothing on the resurrected and triumphant Lord. And indeed, if he is in your life, then enjoy that victory. Enjoy that freedom. You are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter of the Most High God. And so we see a very radical conversion, do we not? And how do we know it was so radical? Well, because her her pimps, let's call them what they are, her pimps saw a marked change in her. And what do creeps do that prey upon the weakness and vulnerability of others when they see their control broken and their ill-gotten profits destroyed? They tend to get pretty upset, (laughs) Just like the the Pharisees and the Sadducees did with Jesus. They saw that they were losing control over the people. That's what made them angry. Not about his teaching, not about what he was saying, because they could never overturn what he was saying, because what he was saying was true. They were threatened by him, and so too here. These men grabbed Paul and Silas. And why those two? Probably because they were the ones that were Jewish. They probably would have been Jewish in their garb, They were the ones that looked like foreigners. What do they say? They say, look what these foreigners are doing. And then they trump up some charges against them, disturbers of the peace. They're advocating customs that are not lawful for Romans. Again, laughable, as I said, because I didn't know that there was much that was unlawful in the Roman world. It's kind of like today. Anything goes except for morality or saying something is right or something is wrong. No, we can't have any of that. Why? Because if we have any of that, well, that might make me feel bad. I might have shame over what I'm doing. Now, these men aren't disturbers of the peace. They were the disturbers of their unrighteousness. And so these city magistrates without investigation or questioning Go along with the crowds, and they have Paul and Silas stripped and beaten with rods. Don't think pool noodles here. No, think curtain rods. This is no small punishments. They're severely beaten within inches of their lives and thrown into prison. Why? Because they they set a young girl free. We must not think that there is no cost for ministry. No, there is a great cost, and we must be willing to give it, even giving of our own lives, giving flesh and blood for the sake of the gospel. And yet, what do we see? Well, the Lord uses even this injustice for his own glory and for his own purpose, because third, we see an unsuspecting conversion. What is it that we see Paul and Silas doing after they've been beaten and thrown into prison? Well, they're not crying foul. They're not crying about the injustice. They're not wanting their free phone call or asking for proper legal representation. No, they are singing. They're praying and singing hymns. When? At midnight. Doesn't it demonstrate that the believer is always truly free, even if in prison? And the unbeliever is in prison, though he be free. What a witness it was, no doubt, as they were praying and singing. And isn't that true of all of us? That that is when we have an opportunity for our greatest witness. It's not when everything is going well, is it? In fact, it's when it's quite the opposite. It's when your world is falling apart. That's when people wonder what your faith is really made of. If you'll really believe then. It's like what Satan said to the Lord about Job, does he, he worship you for nothing? No, it's because you've rewarded him. Take away the rewards and he'll curse you to his, your face. What well, was discovered of Job's faith this is the same that was discovered of Paul and Silas. No, they, they did worship the Lord for nothing. Indeed, when they got nothing out of it. In fact, when everything was stripped away, they still worshiped. That is the witness. That is the witness that the world needs, does it not? And these men, beaten and bloodied and imprisoned, continued to to worship. We think it's hard to worship if it's raining outside. (laughs) These men continued to worship God, even despite their circumstances. And notice what it says, that the, the prisoners were listening. I bet they were. And no doubt, just them, the Philippian jailer was as well. He must have thought, I've never seen... Men like this, prisoners like this before. Well, little did he know. He would encounter them in a much greater way. Because it says at the midnight hour, there was an earthquake. Like when the law was given at Sinai, when when Christ was crucified, there was an earthquake. It was a sign of God's presence, the the work of God taking place. And this earthquake did something miraculous it it opened the jail doors. And not only that, but it unfastened the, the bonds. It was upon their feet. and awakening, the, the jailer knew he was in deep trouble. Seeing the prison doors opened, knowing that such a dereliction of duty deserved only one thing, which was death. He was about ready to, to take his very own life, because better he do it than by the hands of another. But in that moment, he heard a voice, a familiar voice, a voice that he had heard praying and singing earlier. The voice of the Apostle Paul saying, do not harm yourself, but come in for we are all here. What a miracle of God. I think if the prison doors miraculously opened on the county prison, I don't think there would be many still in prison, would there? (laughs) They would all be gone. They would be running as fast as they could, but not here. The jailer calls for lights. And isn't it interesting that the, the light was brought in? That is symbolic. It was It was literally as well as spiritually brought in to that prison. A light to see. This man would see and understand miraculously what he needed the most, which was conversion, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fear and trembling, falling before them, he calls upon them. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a glorious question. And indeed, the Apostle Paul gives one of the greatest answers that we could ever give. One of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. It's the promise of the covenant, isn't it? It's the promise of the gospel. It's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that very moment, salvation came to him and to his house it says that he spoke the word of the Lord, the apostles spoke the word of the Lord to them, verse 32. And he was so overwhelmed by what he took place that he goes and, and gets his, his wife up. He, he goes and awakens Miss Philippian Jailer and, and, and Johnny and Susie and, and Sally so that they too can hear of this glorious message. My, my son this last week said, Dad, who's this Johnny and Sally that you keep talking about in your sermons? Uh, at least he's listening. Uh, so they wake him up. They wake up the entire family. Johnny, Susie, Sally, Miss Philippian Jailer, jailer and says, you must come. You must hear this. And it says that they were taken into his home. He cleans up their wounds as they continue to teach them. And this jailer, this unsuspecting jailer, this man that was just doing his job experienced salvation that very night. There's so many things that we could say here, but let me just say a few points of application as we close up. Don't we see throughout this chapter not only the, the radical conversion, which we no doubt must not miss, but do we not see that the Lord uses means, that the Lord uses something very practical? He uses hospitality. Have you noticed that throughout this chapter? Lydia, as I mentioned, took these men into her home and and housed them. As I I mentioned, for months, this Philippian jailer, as he understands the gospel, invites them into his house and takes care of them and provides for them for a time. These are just baby Christians, but they understood the importance of hospitality and being used by God. We need to, to be reminded of that. That our homes are, are not just places that we eat in and sleep in and have shelter. Yes, they are that, but they are to be used for so much more. Our home is to be the home base for our gospel ministry, for our evangelism, for our witness. And like I said, I think we need to hear that again and again because hospitality is such a lost discipline in our day. And notice when I say hospitality, I'm not talking about entertainments. You're not to entertain. In fact, there's a a great book on this that says something like this. Entertaining is wanting to impress you with my beautiful home, my clever decorating, my gourmet cooking. Entertaining always puts things before people. As soon as I get the house finished and decorated and the place settings complete and the housework done and the things put away, then I will start having people over. Entertaining declares This is mine. Look and admire me. Hospitality, this book goes on to say, puts people before things. Doesn't try to impress, but to serve. Has the attitude that says, we have no furniture, that's okay, we'll eat on the floor. And whispers throughout, what is mine is yours, for this home is not mine. It's truly a gift from the master. I am his servant, and I use it as he desires. Don't get those mixed up. The world seeks to entertain. The church also seeks to to serve and be of service and to engage in hospitality. Second, do we not see again and again throughout this chapter how the gospel shapes and reorients not just the home, but the household within the home? We saw it with Cornelius in chapter 10, and now here again, Lydia and her household And notice it says that her and her household were were baptized. Now, we don't hear anything of her husband. She might have been married. She might not have been. We don't know anything about her children. She might have had children. She might not have had children. She could have been single for all we know. And the household that is spoken about here could have been her and her servants. And yet, what do we see? All of them came under the sign of the covenant. Same here with the Philippian jailer. Went from being seconds away from taking his life. And this home being, being fatherless and, and husbandless to this radically new man that was brought home to them. This man that was made a, a new husband, a new father through this gospel renewal. And it says that the entire family was baptized and came under the sign of the covenants. Now, it is true, we do not know that there were children or infants, but it's also an assumption That all were old enough to believe, and that they did believe before they were baptized. But what I think we see from the beginning of Scripture all throughout, since the very time of Genesis to the time of Revelation, is that God is pleased to work in and through families, in and through households, and that it's never an exclusion. In fact, as you see here in chapter 16 and throughout the rest of Scripture, I think it's a confirmation of it, that God used households in the Old Testament and does the same in the New Testament and with you this very day. And so that's why I like to say that we don't believe in infant baptism. We believe in household baptism. Because it's all within the household that come underneath the covenants that are given the sign and the seal of God's covenant because God's covenant is that he will be our God and the God of our children. And that's exactly what Paul says to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your households. He doesn't exclude the household. That's why Joshua says, for me and my household, will serve the Lord. And the Lord doesn't say, well, that's very presumptuous of you, Joshua. No, he says, amen, and he gives the sign of the covenant. In fact, the Lord says, I'm more for that than you are. He demonstrates that throughout the scriptures. As we close then, don't we see in these testimonies of conversion the same thing that Edwards saw in his day? The surprising and mysterious work of God. Not only how he works, but who he works in. If we were going to start a church today, I don't think that we would choose a a female merchant or a, a crazy, insane little girl or a Roman or Philippian jailer, but the Lord does. and I think it makes him smile. Because the Lord demonstrates that it's the least of these that he can use. And he does the same with you and with the. And I don't know how you came unto the Lord or what you were like. If you were a, a decent and civilized person or you were a, a crazy or insane person or you were completely surprised or unexpecting what God did, it matters not. Because we are... And still are, equally in need of saving, no longer, no, no matter how the Lord would bring it about. And we need to be reminded of that that the, the gospel is not the, the rich man's gospel or the poor man's gospel. Or the gospel is not the, the black man's gospel or the white man's gospel or the, the sane man's gospel or the insane man's gospel. It's the sinner's gospel, is it not? you are a sinner, then it is for you. Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so as we conclude this day, that's what we ought to be saying. Lord, what must I do to be saved? To ask that same glorious question that the Philippian jailer asked. And I tell you the same gospel message that came that day, comes to you this day and the response is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household a surprising work of God is still happening today praise the lord the lord is doing his work in you and in me and in our households let's pray to that end lord we thank you for these testimonies of your powerful and miraculous work in these individual lives. And Lord, we see three very different people from very different walks of life, and yet, Lord, they had one thing in common, and that is their need of you. And Lord, indeed, that is the one thing that we all have in common the one thing that unites us, the one thing that brings us together, the one thing that that would have us to be gathered into this place on on this day is so that we would hear that same message, that we are sinners in need of repentance, that are in need of believing, and there is only one, one name under heaven which has been given, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is that name that we confess, and it is our joy to do so until we would see him face to face, Lord, would you give us, by your power and the work of your Holy Spirit, the faith to continually believe in Christ and Christ alone. Lord, would you help us in this? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.